My boss called and told me to walk from the highway to the nearest subway station and rush back to work on an urgent assignment. That's the first time my parents found out how hard my job is and it made my mom cry in the car. People often reject to believe what they don't understand or what scares them. With Dragonfolio China, you have the unique chance to truly understand a frequently misconceived country and an inevitable shift in the 21st century. Just lean back and enjoy a fascinating journey through China that will astonish and reward you. Niemenhau guys and welcome to the next episode of the Dragonfolio China podcast. My name is Eric and today I want to use this episode to catch up a bit. And that means first of all, I want to give you some updates on what I do right now and what are my current China plans. And second, I want to talk about two very recent movements in China that I find very interesting. I want to elaborate a bit on them and analyze what they tell us about current trends and about China and a perhaps even global development that we all observe somehow. And these movements, I can tell them straight up. One is the so-called lying flat movement. You might have heard of it, probably not. And the second is that there is a sort of fight against the private education sector from the government and also this has a lot of consequences and is i would say important if you want to understand where china is heading these days why they would shut down or basically restrict such a sector so severely and that's both i think somehow related and you will see why and if you want to understand china better then you have to understand these things and how they basically impact each other at the end. So first of all, a bit about myself. I didn't do an episode in nearly two months. I have to admit that. Um, I had some long anticipated changes. I'm not in Central Europe anymore. So I moved. Um, I was uh, before I was mainly in Germany and the Netherlands. Um, as you're is opening up a bit. I used the um, chance to go south. I'm in Portugal right now and I might go further east or I'm actually already planning to go to to East Europe um, or even to some actually literally it's an Asian Asian country um, and I will tell you about this perhaps in the next episode. Um, for now I'm in Portugal. I had a business meeting with two business partners here with whom I manage a company that helps Chinese students to study abroad mainly in Europe. Um, we had some uh, we made some really good progress here and then two of us thought hey why not staying here a bit longer since we both can work remotely and we decided to um, yeah get a nice getaway close to Lisbon stay there for a while we were quite productive um, also yeah pushed our business and um, yeah, I'm still in, in Portugal until the end of the month, basically staying the whole month here in Portugal and doing doing my business or my businesses, if you want so. 
my china plans yeah i mean <laughs> let's be honest this year seems to be another year where i won't be able to return to china those who listened to my episode at the beginning of the year you know i have been quite optimistic and i thought there was a good chance to go back to china in the autumn that was actually my my plan my original plan for this year right now it's more or less for sure that this is impossible uh, unless you are considered highly important for china which i'm obviously not you cannot return to china these days still there are very very few exceptions uh, high level exceptions or for some students but only for korean students as far as i know right now there are literally ten thousands hundred thousands of people students expats and other people who want to return who can't and um, so i i'm one of them for me it's actually it's not too bad because um, yeah in the, in the long term I, I have to go back i want to go back all my businesses at the end lead to china there's a there's a need for me too to go back but i'm not highly dependent other people are still enrolled or they have to earn their money there actually in this case I'm, I'm in a good situation as i speak i think it's more realistic that i'm going to return in the beginning of next year perhaps even a bit later how to how to predict right now china wants to have most people vaccinated i mean within the country and then what happens next is they're gonna slowly open up meaning they will allow certain countries to come but of course we don't know who is this which are which are the countries that are preferred and it might also or it will definitely depend on the global situation and on the situation in in my own country that's how i see right now and nonetheless even though i'm not able to return and it was my big plan for this year or one of my big plans uh, yeah um, <clears throat> i'm very optimistic um and there are a couple of reasons for that uh, one is that i i became really used to the uncertainty and i feel like that's definitely what what covid taught me that if i think about in my situation all these yeah unpredictable things and i couldn't even i didn't even know where i can go next um, with my somehow nomadic lifestyle it was actually important to plan a bit ahead and it was absolutely not possible and i just i got used to that constant unpredictability and of course naturally also build up some new sort of stability around me so that's that's all right and the second point why i'm so optimistic is that i shifted my focus of course as i said still pretty much everything that i do is somehow related to china but there are things i can do or focus on outside of china that's what i do right now so i i'm not in the in an urgent need to return i can prepare things i did some other things which i would not have done if i was in china right now so i think that's really important i think i really uh, got to terms with this situation okay so as i said i want to talk a bit about some developments in china today i'm just briefly giving you the news not a news channel as you know and then i will go into the interpretation what it means and some other observations that i i made so the first one is the private education industry which is highly profitable in china 
It's for many investors. It has been very lucrative. It's an absolute cash cow. Uh, I'm invested as well in one of those companies. And the reason why these companies run so profitably is that it is common to send your kids to schools, to private schools. In China, almost all ambitious parents or kids will do that. It's mandatory if you want to um, keep up with the competition. And yeah, it's, it's, it's nothing, nothing rare. Let's put it like that. In recent weeks, however, many of these companies have lost tremendous value. A lot of IPOs have been canceled. I think, for instance, Tencent, the owner of WeChat, was one of the companies who planned their own IPO with such a company because the, the field and the potential is so big that many companies, they rushed in. They wanted to get a big slice of this pie as well. But what happened now is that she, the president of China, called for tougher regulations on such after-school education programs and tutoring institutions in general. So he stressed the importance of reforming the entire system. He said education um, needs to really satisfy the people, uh, not just um, put them under constant pressure. Uh, he said the system cannot just focus on test scores, which is typically what happens in China. It's more about your your degree, more about your results rather than about your own development as a person. What could be the consequence of this? First of all, it includes banning weekend classes, which of course for these institutions uh, yeah, would be a huge impact. They would lose a lot of potential customers or money. Then there are things like each school probably must have a supervising agency that includes normally a representative from the local Chinese government. We talk about not each organization, but each school. I mean, some of these companies, they might have hundreds or more schools all over China. So each school needs to have such kind of agency because money that will be a lot of effort. It's a, it's a huge change in regulation that would um, impact these companies. Okay, and why is this interesting? What's the reason behind this really? First of all, that's the official explanation. Um, the government realizes that having a young generation that is permanently stressed out under constant pressure is not really conductive for the overall development of the young generation in China. So they want to give kids more freedom at the end. That's one of the reasons I believe indeed that's what they what they what I target for, but it's only one reason. That's what you commonly find in, in the news. However, another reason is, and that's derived from another big news that we heard of recently. China's population is shrinking. You probably have heard of that. China is at a turning point. The population will start to decline very soon, slowly in the beginning, then faster, but the largest nation in the world is decreasing in number and that's not really favorable for, for China after all. Nobody really wants a fast aging population, mainly for economic reasons. 
So it's a, it's a common uh, phenomena for industrial countries, not just China. Uh, we have it in, in Europe a lot. Uh, most of the oldest nations are in Europe right now. And of course, uh, Japan is uh, yeah, affected even, even worse. But you as an autonomous country, you have to come up with own solutions and ways. You cannot say that's the way to go and put it over all countries. And China, for instance, now directly came up with the, um, yeah, relief of the two-child policy. Five years ago, they already got rid of the one-child policy. So parents were allowed to have two kids and now it's even three kids. What, what's the problem? The problem is that the one-child or two-child policy of the 21st century is not made by politicians. It's rather made at home. People decide to only have one maximum two kids three is very rare and the reason for that is and i yeah discussed that in some previous episode about chinese education how expensive kids are in china and stuff like that yeah it's, it's the costs basically so for parents it is extremely expensive to raise kids especially in urban areas and yeah, of course, first of all, it's a question of money, but also it's a question of time because parents somehow, they have to work a lot to support their kids, to support themselves, to support their parents. And at the same time, the actual amount of time that I can spend with the kids is even less. So they would say, why would I get another kid? I hardly can afford one. I hardly can spend time with him. Another kid doesn't make sense. And so there's a clear movement. The fertility rate is, I think, don't lay me down on that, but I think it's like 1.4. So it's around the same level as, for instance, a lot of Western countries. And in order to actually have a, yeah, let's say to at least keep the current level, you would need a fertility rate of 2.1 or something. So that's far away right now. And what can you do? Well, you can increase immigration, but that's not happening in China at a level that really will help the country. So technically, the only remaining way is to increase birth rates if you really want to tackle this problem. Therefore, the question is, how can you increase birth rates? It's not that easy. Biologically, it is fairly easy, but yeah, you have to, you have to come up with, with, um, incentives for, for people, or at least, um, not just incentives. You could give incentives. You could, for instance, like in Germany, you could introduce a kind of allowance for kids. You could pay parents more money, give them tax reliefs. That's one way to go. But I think just giving incentives might not be enough. You also have to, um, get rid of impairments and, Make sure there's a better work-life balance, relieve financial burdens, and take pressure from those who can have kids. And so I think that these um, this whole private education restriction, this movement, is definitely also to allow parents to have more financial freedom. You don't maybe have to send your kid anymore. To such a school in the future or it's going to be cheaper or 
it's just less common and gives you gives you more latitude here. It surprised me really that the government comes up with these measures now so quickly right after after the the release of the of the figures of this new census because it's not really surprising. Most people knew that this is a development in China, the aging population, decreasing birth rates. So for me it was surprising that it directly came up with the free child policy and in parallel they start other action plans like the um, yeah, restrictive handling of the private education sector. But it also shows how straight up China can be, how focused they are. They don't waste time. Imagine such programs in other countries. It would take a lot of time just planning it, but they already implemented it and already take action to go for it because they know actually you can't wait. You have to start, even starting today is probably too late to, yeah, to reverse this trend, but just to tackle it, you have to start. And that's where you see another advantage of China. They just go for it. There's, there are no much obstacles for them in a legal way, so they go for it. Okay, that's the first movement, the private education sector and the um, aging population and how China is seeking to change that. Second is the lying flat movement. That might be even more interesting. So the lying flat movement is a recent trend. Many, um, of course, came up online. And it's a, you can say it's a social resistance movement where people stop striving for mainstream goals. And in China, that would be like buying a house, a car, start your family, and you have sort of ongoing trends like the extreme consumption of of goods, maybe luxury goods or entertainment and, and all these things. And so now there is a movement that says, hey, we reject all of this. It's not worth the struggle, the effort, the pressure that we give ourselves, the expectations. Instead, we lie flat. And to outline this a bit, I will tell you a short story of one of the uh, I think main figures online. She was uh, in a taxi with her parents, I believe. She was on the way to work. Her boss urgently needed her. And um, her name is Huai. She's stuck in a traffic jam and it was not really possible to get to the office. And I'm quoting the next the next lines from the South China Morning Post in case you wonder. That's what, what she said. My boss called and told me to walk from the highway to the nearest subway station and rush back to work on an urgent assignment. That's the first time my parents found out how hard my job is and it made my mom cry in the car. Such a case might sound very weird and would probably cause a labor lawsuit, at least in a country where I'm from in Germany, but in China this is more common than you would maybe assume and it somehow emphasizes or shows that the pressure in China for, for ordinary workers is extremely high and it relates all to what I already mentioned. On one hand, it's of course these mainstream goals like 
buying a house, buying a car, which is sort of related to social pressure, to to customs at the end that you have in China. But why you can escape technically some of these social things, you cannot really escape so easily from feeding your own family. If you have a child, you need to provide some future for him. You might have to get out of the car on the Daman Highway, go to the subway, go to the office. Otherwise, you won't be able to pay your bills or support your kid in the best possible way. But of course, some people now ask, is it worth it? What is it all for? Today, nobody is starving anymore in China. Poverty has been more or less beaten. Of course, there are still very poor places in China. That's what we often forget. But let's take the majority of people, especially those. They will not starve. The question now is, is it worth to always work at a maximum at the expense of one's personal life, at the expense of health? Is it really worth to take everything to an extreme? Is all these expectations that you have from your parents, from your friends and everyone around you, is it really worth it? And with that, some people introduce the so-called lying flat philosophy. And what it really is at the end is a supplement or, let's say, a modern interpretation and adaption of the Taoism. The Taoism, in essence, teaches you to letting things go. Um, it's the philosophy of flow. So you should basically train non-action. You should just let things go, relax. That's in essence, what it teaches you. And you definitely see some relation between this philosophy, which, by the way, is one of the fundamental pillars of, of China still, just that Taoism in recent decades, centuries, got lost a bit. But I think we in the West often, we kind of rediscovered it while in China it got lost. But actually, it's a Chinese philosophy. Buddhism also has a huge impact. I mean, originally it's from India, but it it's been around in China for for a very long time. And I think often people fo- forget actually about this, and they they only focus on on this modern world. And I think now some people try to go back and discover rediscover the roots of of China and try to combine it. So it's interesting to observe that and see how sustainable it is. I mean, let's be honest, it's a very small movement right now compared to the overall size of of China's population. But there are more and more trends like this. There are more people who say, hey, I'm not going to participate in this game anymore. I'm I'm opting out and I'm going to choose another way. I think that's interesting and let's see how it is changing. So putting the two developments together that I talked about today, the uh, restriction in the private sector and the government to, to trying to take some pressure from parents to enhance the work-life balance. And then on the other hand, people starting to say, no, I'm not working my ass off every day anymore. I'm going to relax a bit. So it's becoming obvious for, for both officials and the ordinary citizen the ordinary one 
that China's development in the future is more than just an economic and financial task. It is at the same time an undertaking that involves more humanity, being more mindful and taking pressure away from the people and focus on what we often refer to as work-life balance in the West. The conflict is certainly that you cannot simply say work-life balance first and hey everyone slow down a bit. The reason is simply that as I mentioned in some previous episodes, one of the reasons why China is doing so well today, one of the big advantages over other emerging countries is China's attitude and the hard working mentality which is absolutely unique. Well, there might be similar countries in Asia especially, but at the end it is the mentality in China that drives this country and that is pushing it further forward. So when you have such a movement now like the flying flap movement, authorities are well aware and they also see it critical because they don't want everyone to drop the ball. They don't want to, I'm exaggerating a bit, they don't want a hippie state or something like this where everyone is just enjoying life every day and not contributing anymore to the economy, right? Because it is a trade-off. And as you see, some some countries, when they reach a certain stage, they they try to relax. And that is good in some cases, and especially in, on a private level. But if you get too relaxed, too comfortable, then things might go down in the long term again. And you as a country or as an individual might lose the drive and deal with other consequences again and then you start roaring again. It's always a trade-off. So I think it's interesting how on one hand China, the authorities, how they react, for example, restricting the private education sector, they will definitely come up with other things and also how people see it and what people do sort of improve their lives and whether there are a lot of different trends at the end. Some people still say, hey, hassle, and some people say, stop the madness. That's, uh, yeah, it's, it's unpredictable how, how China going to be in 100 years. Well, I'm not going to be around in 100 years anymore, but hopefully for the next decades, and I will definitely keep telling about this overall movement, about the development in this, in this field. Because even though I think it's a very positive sign, what happens lately, at least mostly, I think it is positive for China. It shows they care more about the people than they did before. It is still a long way to go as well. And it's unpredictable whether this is really going to become mainstream, such such philosophical trends, or whether the government can really successfully take pressure from people and increase the birth rates, which would be so important for China. Thanks for listening to the Dragonfolio China podcast. As you've kept listening until now, I assume you enjoyed the show and would appreciate a five-star rating on your podcast app, which allows other folks to learn about this important topic as well. For more fascinating insights into China and for easy ways to benefit, make sure to visit the website at dragonfolio.net. 